Are INGOs inflexible, incapable of innovating and scaling when circumstances change to the point where they are possibly facing extinction? And are NGOs forever destined to chase the funding they can get, rather than what they really need to make an impact? Why are some NGOs incapable of making and measuring the impact that they desire to achieve, despite all the time and money they invest in their programs? Hi, I'm Chris Mazur-Natra, founder and MD of MZN International, a social consulting firm whose mission is to help those who do good do it better. And I'll be joining Tosca for a three-part short podcast series in which we'll have a candid, thought-provoking and somewhat provocative conversation about the future of the nonprofit sector and the mindsets and mental models that shape the organizations of today. And I am Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken, Principal Consultant at Five Oaks Consulting, where I help leaders of international nonprofits and philanthropic actors turbocharge their ability to lead dramatic and useful change. In part one of our series, Chasing Innovation, Chris and I explore if nonprofits are at risk of becoming obsolete and what they need to do to survive and thrive in a modern digital world. We discuss what leaders can do to transform their organizations into better equipped problem solvers and innovators while the world is facing a climate crisis, a pandemic and a myriad of other challenges. And in part two, chasing funding, we delve into the topic of the never-ending funding cycle and the seemingly outdated business model in which most INGOs are forced to adopt. We'll assess why some organizations continue to grow whilst others stagnate and what nonprofit leaders can do to make their funding and their business model more sustainable. And in part three of our series, Chasing Impact, we ask ourselves if nonprofits can truly make and measure the impact they set out to achieve. We explore why some organizations do not create the impact they desire, despite the time and expenses they make to invest in their programs and what they can do to create a more learning and evidence-driven culture. We're looking forward to having you with us. Welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you.
Are INGOs inflexible, incapable of innovating and scaling when circumstances change to the point where they are possibly facing extinction? And are NGOs forever destined to chase the funding they can get, rather than what they really need to make an impact? Why are some NGOs incapable of making and measuring the impact that they desire to achieve, despite all the time and money they invest in their programs? Hi, I'm Chris Mayerson-Natrup, founder and MD of MZN International, a social consulting firm whose mission is to help those who do good do it better. And I'll be joining Tosca for a three-part short podcast series in which we'll have a candid, thought-provoking, and somewhat provocative conversation about the future of the nonprofit sector and the mindsets and mental models that shape the organizations of today. And I am Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken, Principal Consultant at Five Oaks Consulting, where I help leaders of international nonprofits and philanthropic actors turbocharge their ability to lead dramatic and useful change. In part one of our series, Chasing Innovation, Chris and I explore if nonprofits are at risk of becoming obsolete and what they need to do to survive and thrive in a modern digital world. We discuss what leaders can do to transform their organizations into better equipped problem solvers and innovators while the world is facing a climate crisis, a pandemic, and a myriad of other challenges. And in part two, chasing funding, we delve into the topic of the never-ending funding cycle and the seemingly outdated business model in which most INGOs are forced to adopt. We'll assess why some organizations continue to grow whilst others stagnate and what nonprofit leaders can do to make their funding and their business model more sustainable. And in part three of our series, Chasing Impact, we ask ourselves if nonprofits can truly make and measure the impact they set out to achieve. We explore why some organizations do not create the impact they desire, despite the time and expenses they make to invest in their programs and what they can do to create a more learning and evidence-driven culture. We're looking forward to having you with us. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. This is Tosca at Five Oaks Consulting and Chris at MZN International and I are starting a three-part podcast series, a conversation about a couple of important and also provocative topics. This first episode, 
we are going to talk about chasing innovation. Are nonprofits at risk of being incapable of solving problems and therefore at risk of potentially becoming obsolete? Are we as a sector becoming inherently inefficient, slow, and do we lack innovation to the point that we will go extinct? And if not, what should leaders do to transform their organizations into solution providers at a time when we're facing a myriad of challenges in the world? So Chris, what comes to mind when I say chasing innovation? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Oscar. Fascinating and a really urgent topic. Uh, fundamentally, what comes to mind here is that not-profit organizations or international governmental organizations, like all organizations, they are to a certain degree bureaucracies. And they can therefore be shaped. And they can either be shaped by circumstance or intentionally so. Unfortunately, uh, and this is based on the last 15 years, some organizations start out with incredibly good intentions, but end up being shaped by the rules and the confinements of government grant guidelines and legal restrictions, rendering them pretty much inflexible whilst chasing not impact, but compliance. And they get used as a result. Management and the culture get used to a moderately impactful, comfortable existence rather than actually solving a societal or environmental problem that they have originally been set up to do. And this acceptance of the status quo is really quite dangerous in this unstable, extremely fluid context that we're involved in right now. For we need to be far more agile, we need to be far more solution-orientated. And uh, as I said, we need to be better and more bolder, maybe, to shape the organizations into the vehicle that we need. So I want to say up front, I'm not an innovation expert. I have tried to learn from those who are, and I'll be using some of what they have told me, their observations on our sector of INGOs and to some extent also philanthropic uh, funders. First of all, I think there is a bit of a trade-off. Some NGOs have chosen to try to become large and multi-sectoral, right? Where they have emergency work, long-term delivery of program implementation yeah. and advocacy. That has its own strengths that we won't go into here because that's not the topic of this episode, but others have chosen to uh, not necessarily become large and certainly not become multi-sectoral. They have chosen to stay strongly and in a disciplined way to one sharply delineated competency. And so I'm wondering, that's just purely speculative, whether it is easier to implement innovations and to have the mindsets and mental models that you and I want to have this podcast series focus on when you are relatively small or at least very focused on one particular skill set that where you're very clear on what your core competencies. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. You look, I'm from Hamburg. Hamburg is not Germany. It's a maritime city. And uh, so there, we have a huge harbor out here. And Tosca, I think it's about the, the, the sea or the distance you want to travel for. You would always go in the boat that suits your mission best. You would not go to the Mediterranean from North Hamburg in a fishing boat. Uh, you would not go in a huge cruise ship if you want to get there fast. Um, you, you wouldn't want to go in a speedboat if you want to transport a lot of things. So you would choose the boat for depending on the mission or, mm. or what you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, 
like any organization, this, this isn't restricted to NGOs, of course. I, I work with leaders who find themselves in organizations that have been shaped and sort of cemented into what they do because of what they did rather than what they need to do over the next three to four to five, six years time in this run up to the 2030 SDGs. And I've yet to meet the organization that says we are suitably structured. We, ha we are sitting in the right boat here or on the right flotilla of boats. And that is not a problem. As I said, that is often a fact of life. But um, there needs to be the courage, uh, the understanding and the drive, as well as some resources, to then rebuild or change the vehicle which you need to do. Because the world has changed rapidly in the mm. last two years alone. Yeah. I mean, it is unprecedented, isn't it? Yes. And it's very unlikely that we can just continue as we did. Unless, and this is really what I... I'm a little bit provocative on, we also are going to have to face facts that some people in the sector are very comfortable continuing to do what they do. Absolutely. You know, they can always get project funding from some government and we'll just continue with that. And that is not going to save us. That is not going to achieve the impact we need. Yes. And another, well, a couple of comments again in reaction to what you said. Chris, you and I know that quite a few NGOs have sought help with innovation And design thinking, for instance, they've sought help in getting coached to do that. They have introduced innovation labs, innovation teams, introduced sprint-like ways of working, etc. But I think what you and I brought us together is to that we wanted to talk about the mindsets and mental models, the kind of unspoken belief system and assumptions or ways of working. And you already referred to someone talking about uh, bureaucratic ways of working that hinder that make it challenging to achieve a more innovative type of culture. Let me just mention a couple of things and see if they uh, resonate with yes, you. So please. for instance, um, innovation experts will say that they see NGOs having an, and especially leaders and managers having an overconfidence in their ability to project into the future. They say that they see uh, leaders of innovation projects jumping quickly to, oh, what is the feasibility, the technical feasibility of this innovation? And is it compliant, to come back to your point, Chris, about compliance culture, is it compliant with our legal and other normative structures, etc., rather than focusing on Is this actually a desirable innovation? Meaning, do our stakeholders really want this? Would they use it? Would they sometimes pay for it, etc.? And the viability, is it both from a, a cost effectiveness perspective and in other ways, is it a viable solution? In other words, as innovation experts always say, they say you need to stay in love with the problem a lot longer than being in love with a solution. What do you think? Man, that you touched upon a lot of things there. So to pick up on the leaders who find themselves in organizations that need to change and they want to change this. And let's first of all project the fact that leaders aren't all powerful vehicles and all powerful people who you know have the unlimited resources, unlimited political backup, unlimited stakeholder support. They are confined by Don't. circumstances like you and I are, totally. uh, like everybody, uh, everybody else. But that being said, we need to uh, realize that there are two sort of mental traps. Number one, that the leader automatically needs to know everything. 
Mm-hmm. You know, true leaders are absolutely capable of uh, simply saying that I don't know. It's okay to say I don't know. And right. you know, we have a problem here. It is not okay to then not do anything about it. And in fact, the whole agile development routine does away with this charismatic leader who forecasts the future and somehow then builds retro re-engineers and uh, the organization to fix that problem. The world is changing far too fast here. Yeah, I love it. Can I just say for a moment, I love it, and and then I'll get I'll uh, go right back to you. But I love it that you bring up a link to a leadership model. In this case, what some people might call the post heroic model. So not the heroic model, the all knowing leader, but more the leader who says, "I have growth to do, and I can grow, and the people in my team can grow." That growth mindset. So I love that. Just to interject for a moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, come on. I've got a seven-year-old daughter and a, and a six-year-old son, and we are teaching them about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And it's the same principle at five and seven or six and seven. Yeah. You you do that at between you know 30 plus as well. It's okay to charismatically to still lead and be as charismatic as you want to, to not lose support by saying, it's okay not to know. But I know that this and this and this needs, needs to be better. And in the successful restructuring projects and organizational design project that I had the honor of being part of in the last 10, 15 years with you know leading NGOs, we never knew. That's really what set them apart. We didn't know where we end up. We openly explored that. And guess what? Some things didn't work. Right. But some did. And they were, and you then find a far more authentic, far more realistic, far more practiced solution than projecting some end state that will never come to pass. And also this whole, I think one of the things that I really want to mention here is there's a lot of people who continue to complain about buy-in in a change project. Okay. And I think if you if you are really authentic and open about it, saying, look, we have a mission here, be it water, education, environmental, whatever your social mission is in the world. And I don't know what organization we need, but I really like to find out and progress this within the six months to nine months period. Then you never have a buy-in problem. As soon as you have a buy-in problem, you're starting to discuss, ooh, what's the buy-in of my organization here? I think you've already lost. Can we yeah. talk about that a little bit more? So... So buy-in. So I'll make a couple of observations. One is that I do see some, and when I used, and I think you too, I assume, Chris, when we say leaders, we don't always only mean people with positional power to have leadership, but also those that are informal leaders and leadership is distributed and pushed down through the organization in some NGOs, at least. Um, sure. So, So let's think about leaders in all kinds of ways. But I find that sometimes leaders do not feel that they can trust their innovation teams and that they can let them alone until it's time for these innovation teams or incubators, et cetera, until it's time for them to pitch. So they do not protect them, coming to your point, from the kind of bureaucratic encumbrances, the constraints that typically in a larger organization in particularly will kind of want everything to be very process-oriented and compliance. They don't try to shield them from them and they get too much into the weeds. So instead of saying upfront, listen, 
go forth and come up with innovative solutions. Here are the boundaries because innovation and creativity is not without discipline, right? It's not just, okay, let's just throw everything up and see where it lands. There needs to be some boundaries, like what are our strategic priorities? We need to find innovations that fit within that because I have heard from innovation experts that sometimes when leaders then come to a point where they do a portfolio review, they're saying, oops, many of these things are not at all aligned with our strategic priorities. That's a bit of a problem. So leaders do have to put some boundaries, some constraints around it, but then need to let these people go until it's time for them to pitch and see, is has this been tested enough? Is it validated enough that we can go to a next round, for instance, of work and of investment? Is that related to what you just say you, you said you think? Yeah. So let me put a couple of sort of practical examples around it, like what we were discussing. So first of all, let's demystify innovation. Now, innovation doesn't just happen. It's not that brilliant Einstein-y uh, mm-hmm. Edison innovator. There's not a single person who came up with the latest uh, technical innovation or anything like that. Innovation, likewise, can easily be stifled. And guess what? It can also easily be encouraged. There are management structures and frameworks, as you put it, where you can say, I'm creating the space, I'm creating the culture for innovation to occur. I have no idea what shape and form it might take. That's the nature of innovation. But I will allow it to blossom. So one of the pragmatic ways of doing it is, and we're doing this with a couple of organizations, one in Europe, one in the US, where we provide space and sort of venture funding, we're talking about a few $10,000. We're not talking about you know massive budgets that uh, some companies may have for organizations to have the time, the space, and the collaboration infrastructure, easily forgotten, to actually just do something differently, to not just write the next report, to not just quickly go into yet another meeting. And then we set timeframes around it. You know, saying either the innovation is progressed to the next feasibility study or is progressed to the next, to a field tryout within X many days, or it is dropped. You cannot keep thinking about it for indefinite periods. It's a bit like what Schertler said, for great things to happen, you just need three things, a great team, a few resources, and not quite enough time. Okay. So you're saying setting a distinct timeframes around it, creating therefore a sense of urgency and also a finality in terms of if we don't produce by then, then it will not go to our, our next round in any event is a useful thing. Absolutely. You know, one organization, they've classified the type of innovation, organizational, programmatic, and in organizational, if it can't be done in a year's time, it's not going to get done mm-hmm. because the world will have changed again. And that rule will curtail some innovations, but it also allows others to pass. And programmatically, for example, they said it needs to be kicked off within even shorter periods. You know, you need to be in the field within 90 days with this idea. And if it can't be done in 90 days, we're not doing it. And so do, have you seen NGOs do it well with uh, the use of these, uh, what is it called, gates? You know, where there are different gates that an innovation project has to go through with, with decisions every time. Is there still enough viability and desirability in here to go on to the next round and so on? Have you seen them work well with these kind of stages or gates? Yeah, yeah. And it hasn't all kicked off immediately. I mean, 
We're working with an IGO at the moment, fairly large um, UN-affiliated uh, body. The, the bureaucracy is extensive, put it this way. And, and then they set up this innovation channel. And it was a mistrusted thing. It was seen to be that thing the leader just enacted. And that thing the consultants MZN sort of in, introduced. And it, it, you know, it didn't take like horses to water here you know it, it really took some time but we've let the process run out for six months and you know more and more people came to it and some first results came from it and then the process exonerated and proven itself basically and that took about six months in a huge bureaucracy so this is not a process that takes for absolutely ever on the other side really interesting uh, we've just led a sprint workshop between a corporate and an ngo and into the room came a uh, fairly large, bureaucratic, stable market corporate and a small you know, field-based NGO. And the, the dynamic was exactly the other way around. The organization, the NGO kind of said, well, if we can't do this in 90 days, this will not help before harvesting season in this case. And they've done it in, in you know, hours, really hours to deliver an innovation that would have otherwise taken well, probably would have never happened. And I think the process... Saying, and you're saying that the urgency and the time uh, lines that the, the small field-based NGO put around it helped. Yeah, and, the, and also the pragmatic nature, because you're giving it, as a leader or as someone who designs a process, you're giving it a frame and you're giving it a few resources and some time. But you're not saying have any idea and fantasize what the world could be, because that then ends up with moderating the problem isn't it? And then falling in love with a problem and um, not really solving it. We, we need to get to a solution and the solution needs to happen by Friday 11 a.m. Yet innovation uh, specialists like, for instance, An Mei Chang will say, we, as I said earlier, say a lot of nonprofits jump to solutions too quickly. They don't investigate the problem and what clients will find both a desirable solution that they will actually use in some cases, will be willing to pay for, et cetera, so that financial sustainability is built right in, and the viability. How do you see that balance between falling in love with the problem and falling in love with the solution? So first of all, I wouldn't fall in love either way. But um, <laughs> <laughs> let's just, this is, this is work, but let's be pragmatic about it. Again, the clarity of intent helps a lot here. Uh, beyond the rhetoric. So there is a need to thoroughly study and know the problem. But I guess what? Most organizations we work with know the problem extremely well. Um, they, they, that's why they've gotten into it in the first place. And then I think a decision needs to be made by the team. Is it more time and cost intensive to try this out and fail, which is perfectly okay, genuinely okay there's no bad consequences to that mm -hmm. or does it take more time to go in an extensive study and try to mitigate or reduce the risk of failure and what happens most of the time is that you break a huge problem where you would normally say this is super sensitive we need to study this before you break that down into minor innovations and try those out and fail fast mm. So you, you do a, a series of innovations over a fairly confined time. And if you fail on one step, you just go one step back and do it again and mm -hmm. do it slightly different. This is literally you know, textbook agile product development. Interesting. What do you think about, I worked with a client, for instance, in the last year or two, who would insist that a production of a tech-based tool 
should be produced, built in-house rather than buying things off the shelf that are either just fine off the shelf or that can be tweaked off the shelf and work rapidly. So this idea Mm -hmm. that we need to do the innovation ourselves and then not do it very competently so that because we are not, that's not many NGOs expertise, for instance, right? right? To develop an app to do X, Y, or Z. And so I've talked to innovation experts who say, yeah, then we see a process where the NGO will work for two years on a technical innovation that will come out very meh in quality, <laughs> takes way too long to develop. In the meantime, the problem has moved on again, has changed shape somewhat what again. The technology has moved on, so it comes onto the market way too late. And if only that NGO had bought it off the shelf and then sought either permission or asked in a consulting way that's to be tweaked to their needs. What do you think? Yeah, I think you've given the answer. We, we sometimes in the sector have a notion of feeling a little bit arrogant that we need to do everything in-house, that we are sort of separate from the for-profit or the governmental section. Absolutely. I mean, listen to the word non-governmental organization. We even define ourselves by being non yeah. You know, by being not something. It's deeply set um, in our identity. Yeah, it's it's deeply impractical. It's also a tad arrogant, frankly. I would just always refer to the, the person who can do this the best, who's done this before. And I appreciate that process takes a little bit of you know humbleness, frankly. But you wouldn't you wouldn't solve your legal problem yourself. You would always go to a lawyer, even though it's your very personal problem anyway, right? right. So you wouldn't I mean most people at least would. And again, we've, we're working with some organizations and they, are, they wanted to innovate their business development process. They, they know that they need to diversify their funding. We talk about this next time, obviously, but mm-hmm. there's an innovation that needed to be happening. In order to solve the problem, I'm thinking of one particular partner, large INGO, and they said, we need to get better and different on our business development, how we make our income. And this is a problem that has bedeviled many organizations for decades, some of them. and. It wasn't until someone said in the, in the boardroom, you know what, let's not do it. We are clearly not very good at it. Right. Yeah. Uh, we've been talking about this one for months, if not years. That's let's completely point. outsource and make this someone else's problem. And I think what was sharp about here is what that, that leader, she, she made the distinction between we are good at running programs. We're not good at attracting money. Guess what? If we wanted to attract money, we wouldn't work in an NGO. We would probably be in business and not richer, by the way. And that process has immediately resulted in 20, 30% more funding within a month mm-hmm. by just outsourcing the process to an organization. Well, in this case, it was Amsterdam, but there are other ones as well who actually specialized on that. Yes. That's you know, the, we, but I think, I, mean, that, I think, Chris, that, um, you know, I feel that our sector has a very strong in group orientation, by which I mean, a very strong delineation of uh, setting of boundaries between who are with us. That's the, our sector inside, right? And that's my, that's my tribe. That's my social grouping. And by the way, we are morally superior to others, like to government, to the UN, to uh, corporates, etc. And a pushing away of outgroups. I'm speculating here, but I'm wondering whether that slight aversion we notice, you and I notice around adopting tool straight off the shelf from others, maybe with some adaptation is also uh, related to that. But I'm, sp- 
I'm purely speculating, but to me, it, it, it could be. But we can see this in other sectors too. Uh, the fact is, those organizations who know what their core skills really are, what are we really good at, and outsource everything else, they tend to do better. And you can see this in aerospace, in, in industry, even in governmental organizations. You know, they say, Look, we don't do this. There is a fascinating study uh, rec uh, recently written that said, how did governments actually react to the massive testing regime in COVID? And they said, those governments which outsourced this, you know, medical testing is a huge industry. There are organizations which have done this for 30, 40, 50 years. They have scaled up the, the testing regime across their population much faster and much cheaper than those who tried to do it by their nationalized health service. Mm. And the same goes here as well. I mean, I love the aerospace business, but... It wasn't until NASA decided we will not do near-Earth near orbit. We let the private sector do this. We do the far stuff, the difficult stuff, that they've actually increased their, their budgets again and their outreach. So specialize on what you're good at and forget the rest. So that brings us then back just to bring one arc back to where we started when I talked about you know, some organizations uh, and there are pros and cons on both sides. Choose to yeah. become large, multi-sector, right? Integrated. Others choose to offer one set of competency and become really good in that and then scaling in that. It seems to what you just said, for those who do the latter, from a mindset perspective, a little easier to outsource everything else. So I'm, I'm just bringing it back there. I want to, looking at the time, I want to bring up one more topic. Sure. Us to talk about, and that is, of course, yes. Next time we're going to talk about chasing funding, but in a in right. a broad way. But let's uh, money and innovation. Let's tie that to each other. So, I'm observing is that to be able to be innovative, you have to have some financial resources as well as human resources and talent that you can flexibly move around. That is not strongly tied to one program where if only for ethical reasons or for compliance and contractual reasons, you couldn't pull it out. So sources of money that can be moved around so that when an innovative project passes a validation moment where it says there is enough promise here to go to the next phase, right, of prototyping it, for instance, we need to now rush some resources to that to make that happen. And that flexibility of money is often quite constrained for NGOs. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, it's, of course. Two things there. There are lots of leaders who you know, I talk to, I have the honor to talk to almost every day in the sector who say, look, we can always get enough project funding. We can never get enough unrestricted. Right. Which is what you're pointing at. Then they complain about that. And then they complain a lot about the reduction in restricted funding and government funding. You know, that's great. That's, that's a real problem. I accept that. But the make or break decision comes in again. If your mission requires you to have unrestricted funding, then you have to ask yourself, what mechanisms, what capacities do I need in-house or bolt on, outsource to make that? Mm. What is the innovation that needs to happen here mm. in order to get that? If you break it down, there are steps you can do within this unrestricted funding level. The other one is, is moral. It's not a financial argument at all. If your organization is predominantly focused, funded by government grants, and if that government grant is 90% restricted or whatever it is, then you're no longer an NGO. You are an underpaid government agency. 
And that is not what most people have signed up for. And by the way, that is not what the people who give money to the organization Unrestricted are donating to. Um, so there's an innovation that needs to be fixed, and it can be fixed. It might take two years, but it can certainly be done. Okay. And I think, Chris, that that is a good lead-in into the next session. So why don't I ask you to lead us out and um, bring us kind of with a preview towards the next yeah, great. I think we're talking about funding a bit more. So we're pretty much picking up uh, where we are leaving off right now. And the episode is called Chasing Funding, uh, Will It Ever End? Acknowledging first that good programs, good projects need good funding, but some organizations really grow and do very well and some are just stagnating. So what is the ideal business model for nonprofits? How can we innovate this? And uh, what would be the immediate steps to take there? And that's linking into the innovation part focused more on the income side. Uh, lovely. I'm looking forward to the next conversation. Thank you. Should be good fun. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, 5oaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at 5oaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website. And follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, 5oaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website. And follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.